0: Well, we've been making our way through the Gospel of John. And right now we come to chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. And let me read the first couple of verses. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. The last we saw of Jesus in the Gospel of John, he was with his disciples in the area of Judea, that's south of Galilee. But he got his disciples and he went up north to the area of Galilee. And now we find him in a smaller kind of village called Cana. And what was he doing there? He was there in Cana of Galilee to go to a wedding. And if you take a look at verse 2, it says very specifically that Jesus and his disciples were invited to a wedding. Now, this is something you have to understand about a wedding in Jewish culture of that time. The wedding party was absolutely the best day of your life. It was the best party ever. It was a fun occasion. It was a time where the joy and the goodness of marriage and married life was supposed to all kind of supposed to come together and express itself in a single day. And it was just recognized in that day and in that time as being the best party ever. And notice... They invited Jesus and his disciples in. did not that tell you something really wonderful about Jesus? did not that tell you something right up front that Jesus was the kind of man who would not kill the joy at a party like that? Aren't there some people that you would just say, I don't want to invite them to that party? They'll spoil it. Matter of fact, and I don't mean to step on toes when I say this, but I just got to deliver it truthfully. There's religious people that you would say, I don't want them at that party. Because somehow they think that God is against joy. God is against fun. And sort of God's office in this world is to look across to and fro across the whole earth and seeing if anybody's having a good time and put a stop to that right away. (laughs) Friends, that's not the God we serve. The God we serve, matter of fact, he took a look at this wedding party. And I want you to know that when Jesus was there and invited there, I don't mean to spoil the story, but he's going to do a stupendous miracle at this wedding and do something really amazing. But you know what he's not going to do? He's not going to teach a Bible study. He's not going to preach a sermon. We don't even find Jesus praying, at least not obviously, in this text. Jesus was there to share in the fun and the joy of a wedding party, and God is not against his people or the people in this world enjoying the good things of this world. Enjoy. Have fun! Do it all unto God's glory and unto his honor, because that's a good thing from the God of heaven. That's one thing it shows us, that Jesus was not a killjoy. They invited him to the party. But you know what else it shows us? Is that it's a good thing to invite Jesus to a wedding and into a marriage. Now, I think about that every time I perform a wedding ceremony. I think about what Jesus did in this first miracle that he performed, that he was very much there to bless that wedding by his presence. And you want Jesus to be consciously invited to a wedding, to a marriage. But that's not all. You also want Jesus very much consciously invited into the events of your life. And that's it. Think about what you got ahead of you in the week. I know a lot of you, you're reading your Bible on your smartphone, your iPad or whatever. You also got a calendar program. Matter of fact, some of you might be looking at the calendar program right now. You're thinking about what you have in the week ahead. You think, oh, I got this on Tuesday. I got this on Wednesday. I got this on Friday. I want you to think about the events coming up in the coming week. Why don't you consciously invite Jesus into those events? Consciously be aware of his presence. Consciously open up your heart and say, Jesus, just as much as you were invited to that wedding at Canaan, I want you to be present. I want you to have your joy here. And if you look over your calendar and plan your week ahead, And there's some events that you cannot, in good conscience, invite Jesus to. Why don't you just cross them off your calendar right now? Now, notice that. That's verses 1 and 2. Now into verse 3. Notice what it says next. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you do it and notice this at the wedding there becomes a problem what's the problem that comes up verse three tells us that they ran out of wine the wine was gone my friends you and I might just think well big deal go down to Trader Joe's and get some more no listen of course in that day and age it wasn't so easy but it was also a very big deal because it was essential if you were going to hold a wedding and probably most everybody from the village would be present you had to put on a good party And if you failed in your responsibility to show good hospitality, it would disgrace you perhaps for decades. I mean, that's how it is in small towns. That's how it is in these communities. To commit this social faux pas of failing to properly prepare for the wedding party, man, it could sink you and make you embarrassed and humiliated in your community for years to come. This was a serious problem. As a matter of fact, They've uncovered ancient writings and ancient documents. One of them shows a lawsuit that was made at a wedding because the guests didn't bring a proper gift. That's what a rigid formality there were at these things to do this reciprocal hospitality. And so friends, these people might have been liable not only to uh, embarrassment publicly, but to a lawsuit potentially. It was a big deal to run out of wine at the wedding. And so what did they do? Well, apparently they made some kind of appeal or Mary, the mother of Jesus, learned about this. And Mary comes and she speaks to Jesus and she says, verse three, they have no wine. Jesus, would you please do something about this problem? Now, can we just admit here, it would be a bad thing for this couple to be publicly humiliated by not putting on a good party. And we don't know why there wasn't enough wine. There are some people who think, That the disciples crashed the wedding party, and maybe they drank a lot of wine, and so that's why they ran short. You know, there's no indication of that in the text whatsoever, none whatsoever. You know, I think there's probably a far more human explanation as for why they ran out of wine. Listen, you know how it is. You're on a tight budget. Maybe you plan, you think, well, you know, maybe people won't drink that much. You buy the lowest amount you think you can, and you hope for the best. And sometimes when you do that as a host, it doesn't always work out that way, does it? So they ran out of wine. Mary heard of the request. Maybe she had a relationship with the bridal couple. We don't exactly know. She brings the request to Jesus. And look at Jesus' response. This is fascinating in verse 4 where he says this. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? This is staggering. Jesus' response to his mother. First of all, did you notice he doesn't call her mother? He doesn't say mother. He doesn't say mom. He says, woman. Now, that exact ancient Greek word that's translated woman there, it's a little hard to translate directly into the English language. It's a term that implies respect. Jesus was not disrespecting his mother. It implies respect, but a bit of distance. It's like saying, lady or madame. Again, respect but distance. And friends, it's a little bit shocking that Jesus did not address his own mother by saying mother or mom. That's what we would anticipate. I think Jesus was doing something very dramatic here and very important for us to understand. He was telling Mary that right now, at the beginning of his public ministry, we have a different kind of relationship. You know, before, I used to honor you as my mother, and that was a very dominant thing in my life, as it would be properly. And I will never dishonor you, but this is what you need to understand. The relationship I have with my heavenly father comes first. And so don't appeal to me with that mother-son thing. I'm not going to recognize it. I'm not going to recognize it if you bring a request to me and say, well, son, shouldn't you do this? He says, no, woman, what does that have to do with me? Matter of fact, he says, what does your concern have to do with me? And with that question, Jesus seemed to say to Mary, I won't do it. It's not time. But isn't it funny? He seems to say no, and then he goes ahead and does it. What's up with that? I'll tell you, this is what I think is going on. When Jesus implied no to Mary, but then went ahead and performed what she desired, I think he was essentially saying this. Woman, now we have a different kind of relationship. Let me consult, not you as my mother, let me consult my heavenly father. Because I operate on his orders, not yours. He's reordering his relationship with this woman who gave birth to him. That's a heavy thing, don't you think? But, you know, we find repeatedly in the Gospel of John after this that Jesus constantly says things like this, I don't do anything except what my heavenly Father tells me to do. Jesus didn't operate on his own initiative, but on his father's. He didn't operate on Mary's initiative, but on his father's. He didn't operate on his disciples' initiative, but on his father's. And he's making this clear with Mary. There's a different kind of relationship now as we embark on my public ministry. Well, look at Mary's response. Mary's response in verse 4, or excuse me, verse 5. Wouldn't you almost expect Mary to say, Why are you calling me woman? I'm your mom. No, it's as if she says, Okay, Jesus, I get it. And then she turns to the servants and she says, whatever he says to you, do it. Isn't it interesting that the recorded words of Mary are few? It doesn't say a lot in the scriptures. There is in the Gospel of Luke a beautiful song that she sings that's full of scripture, but there's not many recorded words of Mary. But this particular recorded word of Mary is really glorious. I can't think of a better word for us from Mary than say, whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. Matter of fact, I can tell you that right now. Isn't that God's word for you and I today? Whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. Just do it. And the servants did. So she left it in Jesus' command, in Jesus' control. She detached herself from the situation. And now look at what happens in verses 6 and 7 where we read. Now there were six water pots of stone according to the manner of the purification of the Jews. Containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, that is to the servants, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. So here there are six water pots of stone. And I want you to think of like tall Burns. again holding 20 or 30 gallons apiece. that means the total amount of liquid that we're dealing with is anywhere from 120 to 180 gallons that is a lot of liquid to deal with you say well why were there water pots with so much water there present i'll tell you why because purification ceremonies were very important to the jewish people and at this wedding there would be a lot of people there who needed to do the ceremonial washings so they needed to have a lot of water And now since they were well into the wedding, the ceremonial washings had been done. I don't know how much water remained in those water pots. Let's just say, and I know it's only a guess, but let's just say that there was half the amount of water within those water pots. There it is, laying there. There's half of that water in the water pots. And what does Jesus tell the servants to do? He says in verse 7, fill the water pots with water. Isn't that remarkable? This took a lot of work. They couldn't just get out the garden hose and fill them up. They had to go to a well. They had to draw up the water. They had to carry it over. And they're filling up dozens and dozens of gallons of water with hard work to fill them up. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes when God gives me a job to do, sometimes I am not as obedient as these servants were. Do you notice these servants don't ask why? They don't ask, well, when do you want me to do it? And they don't act as if Jesus is imposing upon them. Matter of fact, they don't question why. They say, okay, Jesus, you tell me to fill the water pots? I'm going to do it. They don't complain about it. They don't delay and do it. They're not hesitating. They say, Jesus, you told me I'm going to jump right on it. And notice this. They did their work completely. How full were the water pots? Up to the brim. They did the work completely. Now, you and I know... Maybe I'm going to spoil the story for someone here. I don't mind giving a little spoiler here. That water in the water pots, it's going to turn to wine. Imagine if they only would have filled the water pots half full. There would have only been half the amount of miracle done. You see, when Jesus told them to fill the water pots, he did not tell them expressly how full to fill the water pots. But verse 7 says that they filled them to the brim. There was no room for any more. I think this is significant for a few ways. It shows that what Jesus asked the servants to do was what they could do in participation with this miracle. Again, not to give a spoiler, but all that water in those water pots is going to become wine. Jesus, he's not going to give a magical incantation. He's not even going to pray a spoken prayer. He's going to think a thought or pray in his mind and instantly the water in that water pot is going to be turned to wine and the best wine. Now, the same God that can change water to wine in the water pots, can't that same God miraculously create the water in the water pots? Then why did Jesus ask the servants to do it? I mean, is it any harder for Jesus to fill miraculously the water pots than it is to change the water? to wine? It's no more difficult for him. He could do it with the thought of his mind. Then why did he ask the servants to do it? Because even when God works in a radically miraculous way, he invites our participation. He wanted the servants to say at the end of that miracle, yeah, look what me and Jesus did. Now, of course, the servants didn't do anything except fill it up. But God said, I want you to participate in my working of the miraculous. His miraculous power does not exclude your participation. You think about it tonight with Harvest America. I believe that many people all over this country are going to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Because in more than 3,000 venues, this uh, presentation of Harvest America is going to be held all over this country. But you know what? God's going to do his great work, but he invites you to have a participation in it. He says, Bring, fill up the water pots and see what I do with a miracle of conversion. Isn't that wonderful how God works that? So here the servants did the word and they did it obediently and they did it promptly and they did it just as they should do. They filled it up to the brim. Oh wait, before I go on to verse 8, there's one more thing I have to say about this. Because they filled the water pots up to the brim, there was nothing more that Jesus could add to the water pots. He wasn't going to walk by and flick in some wine concentrate. Because Jesus' plan wasn't to add anything to the water. His plan was to change it, to transform it. And friends, that's a picture of what Jesus Christ wants to do in my life and in your life. What Jesus wants to do in your life is not just to add something to it, but to transform it. Oh, many of us come to Jesus and say, oh, Jesus, would you please add something to my life? Add some of your love add some self-control. I'm bound in an addiction. Add some peace in my life. Add some power in my life. Oh, Jesus, would you please add something to my life? And you know what Jesus says? He says, listen, I want you to have my love. I want you to have my self-control. I want you to have my transforming power. But listen, I'm going to do it by changing you from the inside out. He didn't come just to add something to your life. He came to change you fundamentally in who you are, to move you from darkness into light, and Jesus is going to change that water into wine. So look at how it happens here. Verse 8. And he said to them, draw out now and take it to the master of the feast. Well, stop right there. Apparently, somewhere between verses 7 and 8, what was in those water pots got changed into wine. We're not told how. We're not told that Jesus did anything. Doesn't this show his divine credentials? For someone to be able to merely think a thought or to pray a silent prayer and water is changed into wine, that is amazing. So let's go back here again to verse 8. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. Now I want you to notice a few things. First of all, I want you to notice the faith that must have taken for these servants to do their work. Jesus says to them, okay, that water that you just poured into the water pots, I want you to go take it and present it to the master of the feast. Now, could you imagine how much faith that took? Here, master of the feast, here's some wine or it's water. I'm not really sure. They gave it to them, trusting in what Jesus told them to do. And when the master of the feast took a drink of it, what did he say? He said, not only is this wine, he said, this is the good wine. This is the best wine. He had no clue where it came from. He didn't know anything about the miracle. He only knew about the result. And the result was he was sipping on some mighty fine wine and he was grateful for it. Now the servants were in the know. The servants knew everything that God was doing. They had more wisdom and more participation in the miracle, knowing what God did, than even the master of the feast did. The servants were in the know. The master of the feast just benefited from The good thing that Jesus had done. Matter of fact, he says this in verse 10, very demonstrably. Notice what he says. You have kept the good wine until now. Now the master of the feast just thought he was paying the bridegroom a great compliment. Man, you guys really know how to put on a wedding party. Because everybody serves the inferior stuff at the end. But you save the best stuff until last. You put on the best party ever. And that's how Jesus works, isn't it? He rescued a situation from social embarrassment into making it a better party than anybody ever knew. And so what did he do? He did it by making good wine. By the way, shouldn't we say that if Jesus is going to make wine, it's going to be good wine? He's not going to make bad wine. He's going to make good wine. Whatever God does is good. It's perfect. Now, I have to address something in this, and it's may well that I may address it straight up. Some people worry about this. They worry that Jesus, when he did this miracle, that he was giving license to drunkenness. The way they picture it is somewhat like this. Everybody's half wasted already at the wedding party. And then Jesus just throws gasoline on the fire or wine on the wino, whatever way you want to say it. It says, woo, drink it up. Everybody get even more wasted. Friends, that is completely the wrong way to look at the situation. Completely. For a couple of reasons. First of all, this is what you need to understand. Wine in those days was wine. Now, I, I do have to say that I have some dear friends and people I admire in ministry. And when they teach on this passage, they go to great lengths to try to demonstrate that what Jesus made was not wine, but it was grape juice. Now, friends, I, I am a Bible man. And even though I am personally a teetotaler, I don't drink alcohol. I, I just don't. And it would be easy for me to try to shape the text in a way that kind of proved my point. Friends, I can't do it. But because I have to be faithful to the scriptures. I have to teach you what the Bible teaches it. And so what the Bible teaches is that this was wine. Now, there's one thing you've got to understand about this. Is that in the Jewish world at that day, two things were very true. Number one... They watered down the wine. They watered it down either one part wine to to two parts water, or they watered it down two parts wine to three parts water. But it was definitely watered down. Could you get drunk on it? Absolutely. But you'd have to be pretty busy about it. Matter of fact, you'd probably get a stomach ache before you'd get drunk. But still, you could get drunk on it. But this is even the bigger factor. Friends, in the Jewish culture of that time, drunkenness was a shame. There was a huge social taboo over drunkenness in Jewish culture at that time. Not so much in Roman culture. That's why when Paul's writing letters to the churches that are dominated by Gentiles, he has to warn them more about drunkenness. But in the Jewish world, there was already a huge social prohibition to drunkenness. They police themselves on this. But friends, here's the point. People want to know, in our day and age, can a Christian drink wine or other alcoholic beverages? Well, let me say this. As I already told you, I don't. And I do it as a matter of wisdom as a Christian leader. And I recommend that to other Christian leaders. I honestly do. I can't make a command out of it because the Bible doesn't make a command out of it. But I make a strong recommendation to other Christian leaders. I think wisdom says avoid it. But if you believe that God has given you the liberty to drink alcoholic beverages, let me say three things to you as your pastor and hopefully as your friend. Three things. Number one, if you are under bondage to alcohol, that's sin. If you are under bondage and addiction to it, you shouldn't have anything to do with it because God doesn't want us to be under bondage to any substance. To any narcotic, to any drug, to any alcoholic substance. That's number one. Number two, number two, you need to be very aware that if you drink, be warned that you should not get drunk. Drunkenness is a sin. And not only is it a sin in itself, but I want you to think of all the other sins and all the other wickedness and all the other immorality that drunkenness leads to. It is a sin. Do not get drunk. And then thirdly, if you're going to drink and you feel that God gives you the license to do so, you should be, and I made up this phrase. I don't know if it makes any sense to you or not. You should be excessive in your moderation. Everybody should be able to look at the way that you drink alcohol that you drink moderately. And I don't know exactly what that means. Look, I'm not a drinker. So I can't really tell you. Maybe it means that if you have a cup of wine, you don't even drain it. You leave some in there. So people go, wow, look, they had a cup of wine, but they didn't even finish it. They they drink moderately. They, They don't even empty the glass. Wow. I don't know exactly what that would mean. But your moderation in drinking should be evident to anybody who would see. Friends, this is important. Because we see people with lives destroyed because of alcohol. And we should be very careful about this in our midst. But I want you to think about it in these terms as well. Look at verse 10 from another angle. Where he says, you have kept the good wine until now. Friends, this is a pattern for how God works in our life. Apart from God, the best is always now and what's in the future is bad. Think about how many people have been sold a bill of goods on sin. Oh, they're attracted to it for some reason. You could just say, it's so sweet, it's so seductive, it sounds so nice, it's great. But then the end of it is absolute ruin. You know how it is? It's just the opposite of that in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, when you have something good, God promises it's only going to get better. And that's how it is. Think about it. Apart from God... This is the best you will ever have it. The future, especially in eternity, it's bleak. But if you're a child of God, what you have right now is the worst you will ever have it. The future is nothing but bright, and your eternal future is united with Him. Isn't that what we're going to say? Aren't we going to get to heaven and our eyes are opened and everything that we thought we knew, everything we thought we saw in this world is going to seem blurry and in low definition. It's going to seem filled with static and we're going to go up into heaven and we're going to see things clearly for the first time in our existence. We are going to be in true HD. We're going to see it all crystal clear. And friends, when we see it, we're going to say, oh, Lord, you have saved the best until now. Now is the best. That is the pattern of God's work from now into eternity. So don't forget it. Don't neglect it. That's how God loves to work. All right, going on now, verses 11 and 12, we take a look at what he says. He says, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, and brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. I want you to notice something. John takes special pains to notice that this was the first miracle that Jesus did publicly. This was the beginning of signs. And John says, I want everybody to know that the first sign, the first miracle that Jesus did was all about conversion. It was all about transformation. Transformation remember the full water pots they were full because jesus didn't want to add something to the water pots jesus wanted to transform what was inside those water pots can i just tell you you're like a great big water pot and jesus doesn't want to add something to your life he wants to transform you jesus is in the transformation business And when we come and surrender our lives to him, he transforms us. But here's the point. That transformation work doesn't end right there on that day. Matter of fact, it continues. Oh, I'm sure there's some things that Jesus transforms immediate in our life and other things he leaves to have that work of continual transformation. And that transformation work is not done until we pass from this life unto the next. If you ever meet somebody who claims to be completely transformed, then friends, there's a difficulty there, isn't it? But notice this, the transformation can be tested. What do I mean by that? What did Jesus do when the water was turned into wine? He told the servants immediately, you go take some of that water and you present it to the master of the feast. Jesus did not mind having the miracle tested. Friends, I think that that's a great principle for us. I believe that God does miraculous works. Do you? I believe it. In my years of walking with the Lord and in my years of Christian miracles, I've seen God do dozens of flat-out miracles. I've seen him do amazing, astounding things. But here's the thing. When God does a miracle, it can be tested. It can be verified. Why do I say that? Friends, it's easy for somebody to say, you're healed in the name of the Lord. Yes, isn't it great you're healed? You know what? If you're really healed, go to the doctor and the doctor will show it. Jesus said, take the water to the master of the feast and have it tested. Why do I say that? And friends, I believe this is a big point in our day and age. I believe that God does the miraculous, and I want to see him do more and more among us. But it needs to be said, there's a lot of foolishness that happens among Christians. Pretended, purported miracles, and they're never tested. Tested. Oh, look at this miraculous thing. Look at this great sign. Look at what God did here. You know what? If it's real, it can be tested. If it's real, take it to the master of the feast and let him test it. Because you know what happens? When there's this claim to the miraculous and that claim to the miraculous and none of it's tested, people will find out that some of it's just phony. People will find out that some of it's just hype. And when they do, people will fall away from Jesus Christ. It's a serious thing. Nobody should be um, credulous when it comes to believing in the miraculous. If it's real, take it to the master of the feast and let him test it. Because when God does a real miracle of transformation, it can be proven. But that's what it was with Jesus and his disciples. It was proven and notice verse 11 says that it manifested his glory. The glory of Jesus is displayed when he transforms things. Did you know that when Jesus transformed your life, and I'll speak to you all as if your lives have been transformed, there may be some here that that hasn't happened for you yet, but when you put your trust in Jesus Christ and you're born again by the Spirit of God, he transforms you and that manifests his glory. That changing of water to wine from the old to the new to the old rituals, to the new wine of God's joy and God's love. Friends, that is something that manifests his glory. He loves to manifest his glory in transformation. And then what does it do? It leads other people to belief. Because look at what it says in verse 11. His disciples believed in him. What didn't they believe in him before? Yes, they believed in him before. But they believed in him again and again and deeper and deeper. Is it like that for you? It should be. I don't know about you, but I want to believe in Jesus again and again. I want to believe in him afresh every day. Sometimes when I hear someone who preaches the gospel with passion and with skill, when I hear them preaching the gospel and then giving an invitation to receive Jesus Christ, this ever happened to you? You want to give your life to Jesus all over again? See, I haven't walked with the Lord for 30 years. Yes, but I want to get saved again. Friends, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. It's a good thing because in the same sense, the disciples believed before, but now they believed again. They believe further. They believe deeper. They believe fresh. That's exactly how God wants it to be for you and for I. But there were certain people who believed. The people who believed were his disciples. We're not told that the master of the feast believed, even though he drank of the wine. We're not told that the servants believed, although I'm sure they were blown away. We're not told that the guests were believed, that the bridegroom believed. We're not told that any of those people believed. But the belief came to his disciples. If you say, Jesus, I want to be your disciple, I yield my life to you, then every miracle of transformation that you see around you will lead you into deeper and better and fresher belief in Jesus Christ. I want that for you. I am positive that God wants that for you. And you know what? He's given you a way to do it right here, right now. I don't know if you noticed, but right up front here in front of our platform, we've got several tables set up because we're gonna have communion together here this morning. But instead of putting it on the silver trays that we pass out and that with the little cup and the piece of bread, instead we've got tables of communion for you to receive at this morning. So in a moment, I'm going to pray. Uh, Dominic Bali and the band is going to come back up and lead us in some songs of worship. And as they do that, I'm going to invite you to come forward to the tables of communion. I'm going to invite you to do what Jesus did to share in that good wine that Jesus makes, that you would take the piece of bread and dip it in the cup. But I need to say something. Friends, this is for those who believe. This is for those who who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And if you've never done it this morning, then what you need to do is come forward. And if you want to receive a communion, then make that your act of faith. Make that saying, Jesus, I want to believe. I yield my life to you. I yield it to you for transformation. Would you please do that miracle of conversion in me? It can be your demonstration of faith to do exactly that. And Jesus will glorify himself Among us, just as he did in Cana of Galilee. Father in heaven, we are so grateful. We're so grateful for this time, for this place, for this meeting ground that we have with you. And we pray now, Jesus, that you would prepare us to come to your table. Lord, I have to say, it's somewhat of a humble feast. I'm sure that the food and the supplies at that wedding in Cana were much more ornate than what we have right here in front of us. But you've given us a meal to share with you. The bread and the cup. And Jesus, I pray that you'd make it in our hearts like a wedding feast, rejoicing in your work of transformation. Do it in our midst, Lord. Speak to us now. We believe you've spoken through your word. Now, Lord, speak to us through the bread and the cup. We receive it with faith so happy that you bring glory to yourself in our presence. In Jesus' name, amen.